Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad10, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad10. Hello, B2B friends. This is Ledge. We're back for another episode. Today's guest is David Wolf. He's the CEO and founder of Inguo. David, Tell us about yourself. Say hello to the audience. Tell us what you guys do. This is this is really exciting. I think everybody's going to have a fun time nerding out today. Cool. Thanks, Lech, and hello, everyone. So I am a former policy analyst, conflict strategist that has moved into the world of AI and data analytics. You know, it's it's been interesting weave to go from, you know, working seven years on Capitol Hill and with the um, intelligence community to, you know, doing B2B work and and delivering breakthrough technology to the world of data analytics and, you know, getting, I would say, the entire marketplace of anyone who in the B2B space who deals with data to understand that that the wall that they've always had with regards to correlations has been busted through. and trying to to get through that skepticism that a lot of people talk about causation and you know one of the catchier phrases I love it when I hear it on ESPN you know correlation is not causation and I'm like dude you have no idea what you're talking about you're a defensive back for 15 years doesn't mean you're not smart Richard Sherman's smart but if he told me correlation is not causation I'm like you actually know what that means <laughs> might have to help us you know because I'm sure everybody here drops that phrase once in a while so. <laughs> And I mean, you know, look, he's a Stanford grad, so I'm definitely not knocking him. I mean, he's a very, very intelligent, intelligent person. But I speak with PhDs and statisticians all the time who are like, we do causality. And I'm like, no, you don't. Okay. And so that's, and it's, it's a difficult conversation to have because they're far smarter than I am in this area. But it's also like, you know, don't go John Henry on me here, you know, the, the steel driving man. Like, I'm not trying to replace you. I'm trying to make your job even more fun. So I, I guess that that's the biggest intro I could give is, you know, we are a spin out from the NECX Accelerator Program from NEC Corporation in Tokyo. Our current core technology was built by the Innovation Labs of NEC. It does provide causal discovery and not causal inference. If you're doing causal inference, you're doing correlations. If you're doing causal discovery, you're straight machine learning. And that would be new to people because we're the only ones that currently have. And so is a combination of Chinese and Japanese, which means cause and effect. Because if you're dealing with causation, you're looking at cause and effect and causal impacts. And so that's what we do. And 
a team of five female PhDs built this algorithm who have PhDs in data science and statistics. They are all Chinese. NEC is a Japanese corporation. When I was finishing graduate school, I had this dream of bridging that divide between Japan and China and getting over historical reconciliation and things like that. So to me, I get to live my dream in this way that I get to do cause and effect with Chinese and Japanese and, and bridge the two between you know, people who were in China and people who were in China. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. That's cool. There is actually we'll get we'll get to we'll get to storytelling. <laughs> tell me tell me a likely business scenario that can like bring this into you know terms that that everybody understands that you know like a use case I guess that you know would would kind of help bring it down to earth on on what the the software and the algorithm does. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I I we just came out of a political campaign and I worked with a polling firm who was who was giving insights into into questionnaires that are voter voter surveys in swing states. And so if they wanted, if say they took it from a specific district and they asked 30 questions and they get 2000 respondents and they want to know what is driving someone to vote for Trump, what is driving someone to vote for Biden? Are they into climate change? Do they hate climate change? Do they think that people who vote Democratic are all socialists and hammer and sickle carrying people? And do, you know, People on the Democratic side think that anybody who votes for Trump is a Nazi, you know, and what is driving people to have the, I, I know that I'm giving it a very over. We need to, I actually, no, I'm thinking, I just want to feed all of Twitter through your, your thing oh, and just kind of watch the results. And it would be a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> that ter Twitter terrifies me, which is why I don't use it. And I have my marketing people do the Twitter feed. And though I have a Twitter account, I absolutely stay away from it unless I'm just putting something out ridiculous of pictures of Ken Kesey with a great big bed or something. Um, <laughs> so anyways, you could take those questionnaires and depending on those answers, we can show the actual relationships between each question and what is like, what are the relationships between those questions? So if you were doing canvassing, for example, you could go armed with questions from that district and you know what the people within this district are already thinking and so you pretty much can have a script with you to turn them from one way to the other so say you want to take someone from being a hammer and sickle carrying lefty or someone from being a you know nazi you know how are you going to change that and i and i use those because they it, and you and i'm sorry and you can change based on that i mean so you actually can change or at least these know the triggers that might help you change you know the triggers that can help you because you it means yeah. that, so as someone who's trained in negotiation it means that you can use linguistics and language to steer a conversation or if you think that something is fake news or you think that someone what they're believing is not true that you could steer that conversation and try and keep it civil and I know that those are those are extreme things that can be said. It's just I I it to me the last oh, has been absurd. So it's just it's it's been a little ridiculous. There's plenty of extremeness <laughs> on, both, on, on both sides. So. Yeah, yeah, no joke, no joke. And so I, I mean, I just could certainly imagine then from a sales and marketing and business development and understand your customer. I mean, there's like got to be a million different ways to to use data like this from real-time streaming marketing platforms, things like that. Then. So on a, on a, from a sales point of view, we did one, let's just say for a, a, a CPG company and trying to look at 
what was driving their brand affinity or or what was driving people to buy their brand of shampoo. Okay. And was it the recommendation from their hairdresser? Was it because they have Sophia Varg, Vagar, how are you? I, I don't want to butcher her name. Uh, Somebody famous. famous <laughs> you know, in Hathaway, you know, doing the twirl and whatever. You know. For all those who don't have video, he just did the twirl. I just want to know that. So you should check YouTube. Or Brad Pitt with his, his curly locks, you know, like, <laughs> is that what it is? Is it because it smells good? Is it because it sits in the middle of the aisle in Target? You know what I mean? Like, like, so it's, it's literally, it can give them those types of insights at a granular level rather than doing a correlation and grouping them together and then trying to run a cross tab and figure out what they're doing. We do not do correlations. We go straight to causality and we do it with high accuracy and high speed. Those questionnaires could have, so for example, if you're doing a CPG study, you would have 25 to 50 questions. You're probably going to get anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 respondents. You would have your directed acyclic graph with essentially around 85 to 90% accuracy. You would have it in about 45 seconds. And you would know then they, they would have to ask you a specific question. So like, why do people yeah, solve it so, or something? So what why we like to say is, is we're helping you discover the whys in your data set. So, so with that, it, it is an automated platform. So the algorithm spits out the graph, but then there's automated platform where you can run a key driver analysis. You can run simulations. You can check out KPIs. You can run prediction models. You can do all of those things within the automation features of the platform itself with that one particular graph. So you, the insights that you can gain from one graph, essentially you could take six weeks worth of work and, and do it in five, six hours if you wanted. And, then, and so this is, this is that conversation around like, you know, sort of this, the whole stats team is a little scared that, you know, an AI is starting to, to do their work. And so you have like a little change management challenge on augmenting the humans and, hey, we're not trying to take your job kind of thing? Exactly. So that that is one of the large challenges. So so if I'm speaking with a client on a B2B call, you know, generally I'm speaking with a statistician or a data scientist who has a PhD or has been in the field for 25 years. And they're just like, you're trying to replace me in my $175,000, $200,000 a year salary. And it's like, no, you could take your data, you could give it to your junior data scientist, let them get some insights. But the thing is, is you can also add expert knowledge into it to strengthen your graphs. So, and then you can also communicate on the interface with your teams. So you're streamlining the whole teamwork. So yes, that junior data scientist can get those initial insights. They could write up a report, but that senior person is going to be able to dig into that in a way and understand the, the science behind what he's, he or she is looking at and really dig deep into it and look at specific things because, you know, say they run a, a key factor analysis and they're looking at it and the junior data scientist isn't going to understand why one attribute has a direct linkage to the target, yet this one that has the most direct causal effect or total causal effect to the target doesn't even have an arrow on the graph that goes to the target. Why is that number one? And I'm like, well, this is high stakes Jenga. Because if you're running correlations, you might not look at that piece that shows it doesn't have any target. But the thing is, is that attribute has a direct, a strong direct causal impact 
on 10 other attributes that are going to the target. So it's high stakes Jenga, meaning if you didn't look at that and you removed it, you may have just pulled the cork out of your boat and you could sink the whole thing. So um, that's, I, I, it's a very, you know, strange way maybe of putting it, but it's, it's, no, I get it. It's like, if you don't know the important variables or the important variables are unknown or you aren't sure, I mean, all of us, all of us in business are, are trying to make the best decisions we can make with, you know, relatively incomplete knowledge that often comes down to, you know, the best data we can get plus a healthy dose of, you know, human gray matter powered pattern recognition that you can't put your finger on, but you have a gut feeling, quote unquote, well, really that's pattern recognition, sort of firing a bunch of neurons and going, I've seen something like this before. Now I can look at a result like what you're talking about and I can kind of you know, sort of validate and, and understand more. And then upon that, there's a, a multiplying effect Then you really give the best input to the gray matter and let the gray matter do its thing. That's right. So it's, and that's the difference between discovery and inference. Inference is someone who is, is that high, highly capable user who's using SEM or SPSS and, and the tools to build what's known as a Bayesian network, which looks like a directed acyclic graph, but they're running correlation. So when they're building that Bayesian network, they need to know that things are correlated in order to build it. And then those relationships are built on assumption. And I, I don't like saying it because I don't want people to think that I'm saying, Oh, you're wrong and you're just biased towards something, but it's pure psychology. We are biased, you know, just by pure nature of being a, a sentient being. But what the machine learning is doing is it's finding where things are correlated and then finds out and then builds the map based on those structures. And then, so that, that example that I gave about the, the attribute that's sitting out to the side that doesn't have a direct linkage to the target, if you're running correlations, you're gonna say, well, that's not correlated to that. So an example I could give was we ran a Forex where we're looking at, you know, US Euro exchange rates and what's driving it. And if you looked at it, it would be the Danish Krone because it was the most highly direct linkage to that change. But in fact, it was the Swiss franc, which has no direct linkage to that exchange change, yet the Swiss franc has the hard, highest impact. So it's, it's, and I just say that because I just, I just talked with someone about that. So that's why, you, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, that's, that's what we're doing is getting, we're getting into the weeds and at a granular level, just, we can do it really fast and really accurate. Yeah. And I'm interested in, I, and I bet a lot of the audience can relate to this idea of having to sell cutting edge stuff or things that really feel like, Hey, you know, you're trying to automate my job away, or you're trying to, you know, sort of bring in this bleeding edge technology. We're not ready for that. We don't believe in this. And you got that decision-making kind of process where there's a lot of people that can say no to the buy and only a couple of people that can say, yes, they're not in the same business unit. They maybe one's an executive and one's a, a data scientist and one's, you know, whoever like this, this suits every kind of B2B sale that almost that you could imagine. Mm -hmm. How do you, you know, advice to get around that because that that's a huge thing for B2B companies. It's, it's really hard. I mean, you know, the, 
the executives are actually a far easier sell because, you know, we're like, look, we're, we're going to really drive up your ROI because you're going to spend less money on people doing all of this labor. However, those people are still necessary. They can intellectually collaborate with the tool. So I'm not advocating that you replace those people. But the thing is, is you're going to be able to take on far more projects. Whereas the, yeah, I mean, getting around it with the senior data scientist person, it just, I, I have one client that I'm in a, in a enterprise negotiation with right now. And the person that's given the most pushback is the person who's putting that Bayesian network together. And they're just like, I already do that. And, you know, it's, I'm sensitive to those people because I get it. I mean, I, I totally get the fear. But the thing is, is, is if you're just pushing back against technology for that very reason, then you're setting actually society back. And, you know, the, the other thing on that ROI piece though is they're also going to be able to command more money from their clients. Because they're like, look at the granular insight I'm giving you. Like, I'm literally telling you if you're going to make that television commercial, what words that you should have in that commercial that's going to drive that, that behavioral feeling, that, that attraction to, to what it is that they're looking for. So it, it is a, it is a balancing act. So when I get the decision makers on the phone, I really try to get them to be like, you know, once the other guy hangs up and I'm just like, look, tell him he's not going to lose his job. Tell her she's not going to lose her job, that that's not what this is, that that you're all going to do a lot better with something like this. And maybe, and I'm like, usually my first question is, is that person on salary? Yes. How many hours a week are they working? Because why don't we take them from a 70-hour work week down to a 40-hour work week? We give them a little work-life balance and they can spend more time with their family or they can spend more time trying to find a family. Like it's, you know, it's... Right. So it's like, it's like technology to sort of leverage better. It's not technology that we're just going to have, you know, sort of this room full of computers and robots and and nobody's going to have a a job anymore. So, I mean, like all levels, the economy can relate to that type of technological doom saying, I guess. Well, that's, that's why I, I use the John Henry example a lot. I'm like, well, yeah, John Henry did it, but what happened at the end of the story? He died. <laughs> so, <laughs> he had a heart attack and died. <laughs> so, you know, right. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Oh, tell me, tell me the story of the path, you know, you alluded to an interesting path to get to, to where you are. So tell us the, you know, the, the career path stories a little bit and uh, some lessons learned and you know, paint the picture a little bit for how you got here. So it, it, it was definitely a very indirect path. I think most people, once they get to know me, they're like, how did you end up running an AI company? So I, look, I started off in international policy. I was in conflict mitigation, conflict management, conflict reconstruction. I worked directly on the Kashmir dispute for seven years between India, Pakistan, and China, Had which put me in Capitol Hill. I worked with both the Bush and Obama administrations, not for, but with. And some things went south, as most things in Kashmir do. And so then I went into international development. And then I just, you know, my wife and I wanted to have a family, so or start a family, and, and we were turning gray. So it was like, it's now or never. But my wife was like, you know, you can't be going to places where you have to dodge bullets or, or worry about, you know, 
catching some crazy disease and bringing it home, whatever. And so, you know, I went into project management for a IT consulting firm. Then I was a director of operations for the government office of storm recovery here in New York City for for reconstruction after Superstorm Sandy and the five storms they had here. And so I was balancing kind of like technology and policy and I was trying to figure out. But around 10 years ago, I got approached by someone I knew who was at NEC Corporation in Tokyo. And they said, you know, we're moving we're we're moving a production line or something from China to Vietnam. Can you and Asia was my background and my specialty. My second language is Japanese. So he's like, can you write a case study for us? What that would look like? What's the footprint? What's the supply chain? What's the economics of it? So I wrote it for him. He was out here at a market research conference in early 2019 in Brooklyn. And, you know, he reached out and said, hey, let's get dinner and I'd like to meet your daughter. So I was like, all right. So we met and he just starts sliding me literature about this thing called Ingua. And so I get home and I'm looking at it and I'm like, what is this? So I email him. I'm like, obviously, you're giving me this literature for a reason. I, you know, do you want to meet tomorrow? And he's like, yeah, can you come to the hotel? So he explains it to me. And I was like, wow, if I would have had this when I was working in international development stuff, this would have been a game changer. Like I could have seen what was inefficient about my projects. I could have seen why, how we could have used $30 million here or $10 million there and not done X, Y, and Z. And it would have been great. He's like, why would you do that? This is for market research. I was like, well, because that would benefit society. You want me to sell shoes. And, and we had kind of a laugh about that. And so that was, and he's like, we're looking for an entrepreneur in residence. You speak the language, you know, the culture, this is the first spin out we're going to do. It's most likely going to be a painful process because you'll be dealing with NECHQ in Tokyo. And so there is a pretty big cultural difference, even if you're dealing in corporate culture here in the U S than Japanese corporate culture. And it was a painful process. So I got tapped for that in March, late March, 2019. and took it from there. And I had to learn about causal analysis. I didn't know about causal analysis. So I became, you know, theoretically, in theory, I became friends with Judea Pearl and, and Donald Rubin, who are the foremost people, just meant that I read their books and their case studies and this and that. <laughs> Meeting with the, the teams that built the algorithm, understanding what they're doing, understanding what the difference was, and then getting sent to conferences all over the country getting on stage the and and you know being a presenter of this new technology to market research conferences the first couple times pretending I knew what I was talking about when I didn't but it was a you know it was a fake until you make it and now now I'm 100% there and it helped me to understand that b2b process because I wasn't from that world either helped me understand the entrepreneurial process and then understand my my use cases um, and market market use cases. And it's it's been an interesting journey. I'll just say that. <laughs> so you had to get involved with, you know, CEOs can end up doing everything. What's your kind of favorite areas of the business? You already talked about, you know, negotiating deals and, and sales. I, I suppose you have to do a lot of other things in the CEO seat. How do you, how do you balance all the functions? A lot of founders are in that. Well, spot. I mean, since we're, you know, to be fair, I mean, I launched, I launched the business in late April, early May. And technically our launch date for going live as we're selling to like, like we're live and we're selling 
was May 18th and of 2020. So, I mean, I'm in New York City, like people were dying by the thousands at that point. And, you know, the reason I chose May 18th is because I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest and on May 18th, 1980, um, Mount St. Helens erupted. And so I'm like, we're either going to blow up or we're going to be a mudslide down the mountain. And I also took another cynical view that I'm a huge fan of music. And one of my favorite bands growing up was a band called Joy Division, who became New Order. But they became New Order because on May 18th, 1980, their lead singer, Ian Curtis, hung himself. So I'm like, we're either going to blow up like a volcano or we're going to be huge or this is just complete career suicide. So I do have a very dark sense of humor like that. But it's... <laughs> But that was why I, I literally chose that date for that very reason, because I'm like, this is crazy. But the things that I enjoy, I, in all honesty, you know, I hate fundraising. I, I, I don't like doing those things. I, it's a necessity of the CEO's role. What I actually really enjoy doing is when I get on calls with my data science team and someone like a Johnson & Johnson or a Cantar or a General Motors or a Toyota has sent us data sets to analyze. and they're like, Hey, David, can you, you know, and I'm like, yeah, let's get into it. You know, and that to me is fun because not necessarily because of what we're going to deliver for the client, but just because it's to me, like making something fit and just understanding what it is and just digging deep into something. And, and there's still, it still requires analytical thinking and some outside the box thinking and, you know, I mean, it's machine learning and the d- data is democratized. So there's no bias that we can put into it. But that doesn't mean that you can't play around with it and massage it and find you can, you know, you could produce a graph that doesn't have an necessarily an adequate fit, but you can get it to an adequate fit because you can learn so much from that one graph that you can strengthen it and make it better to where like we did one for a, for an, for a company where the the target attribute that they that they had had no causal linkages going to it, and my my senior data scientist she's like David I, I don't know what to do like there's there, there's no causality to this like they're gonna hate us they're never gonna they're they're never gonna buy and I was just like well let, hey D let's work through this you know and she's like all right so we start working through it after about two hours we now have 15 causal linkages to it the graph has gone from a pseudo adequate fit to a near perfect fit and we run the the verification behind it to prove that it's true and it's like we didn't manipulate anything we didn't change anything we just added expert knowledge that we knew like it was sending an email to a client hey what could you tell us that we should know about particular questions like what are the known knowns and as soon as they would tell us that tell us what the relationships were between certain questions we could input that extra knowledge and then all of a sudden those linkages just start to pop. And that's what I enjoy doing. It's like discovery. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. that's fun. No, I totally get it. Like, because you, you didn't have the human domain knowledge down in the weeds of those things, you had to still augment like the, the human discovery part was vastly in a sense, more valuable that's than, right. than the data. That's right. Yeah. That's why, you know, we say you can bring in expert knowledge, or as I like to say, and I borrowed this from someone I heard at a conference, we want our users to intellectually collaborate with the machine learning, with the platform. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what I try to sell to those senior people that we were initially talking about that 
may see this as a John Henry moment. It's like, no, I want you to interface with it. Like that's what the automation is for. And what you can get out of that is far more than what you're getting now. And without the headache, <laughs> you know. Right. So right. Do, do business users who don't have, a, you know, a, any kind of data science or anything, I, I mean, is it is it a tooling that's useful, you know, for a, a company where they don't have any anything except just business people and a lot of data? You know, like you don't have the people that could inform it and you don't have data sciences, science teams. And, you know, is, is that, is that relevant then? Yeah. I mean, we can, you know, we can train people to do, I mean, look, I was trained to do it. I, I learned how to use it and I always use myself as the example, though. I, it's not like I was a complete layman, but, but, you know, I'm always saying like, if I could be trained in a, in two weeks to go present at the IAEX North America conference and, and understand at least at a grand, at a basic level what's going on, then yes. I mean, look, we do offer those services. So we are a D, you know, we're initially DIY, but I have data scientists for a reason. They, you know, they can, we can be hired as a consulting firm to do it for them. So we're, we're a mixture of both, but yeah, I mean, anybody could really, use it in all honesty. I mean, I, like I said, I would want to use this, you know, to me working with a Cantar or a Johnson and Johnson or a Procter and Gamble or someone like that. Yeah. That's our initial beachhead, but I want people in the UN, the world bank, the U S government, you know, people working at Pfizer that are running clinical trials, things like that. Those are the people that I want this in that AI for good space. So, and those people are probably going to be more focused on, hard science than, than life science. So it's, it's an, it's very intuitive and easy to learn as long as, you know, people initially are like, I can never understand what that means. It's like, no, 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 trust me. It's really not that hard. It's, it's pretty simple. Yeah. Talk about that, adding the service layer to a DIY software. I, I primarily work in the space just like that, where it turns out that almost every b2b software firm gets asked to do human things and like have to provide a professional service particularly at enterprise so, scale it turns out that people don't want a diy they want to know they can <laughs> and and then they want to pay you to do it because that sounds like it sucks you're so. you're 100 correct which i think is very relevant for this podcast um when i would attend those conferences everyone was talking about diy and now coming out of COVID, I see a lot of people, a lot of brands specifically in the market research space who are like, we want to internalize more. And so, but at the end of the day, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's okay. Well, here's a DIY solution. Well, you know, but is my vendor going to understand that? And then that's when I was like, vendor, what are you talking about? I thought you were going to use this. Why do you need a vendor? I mean, if you need someone to do it, I'll do it. Like that's, that's, you know, I have a team that can do that and I can probably do it cheaper and faster. How I was able to get, like, say that political polling contract was they gave us the, the, the polling data. And he was like, so you'll be, you know, I need to get this back to my client who's running this stuff in about a week. Are you going to be able to give us the causality? And I was like, 24 hours. Okay. And, you know, so those are the things where I'm like, yeah, 
mean, if it's a bigger company, I mean, it depends on the study, obviously, but, 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 you know, generally we can do it in a week. And so they like that turnaround, but yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how everyone wants DIY until they have to do the work. And then it's like, hey, and did you set out knowing that, or you discovered that and just spun up some humans to help? No, I knew that going in. You know, I had, we work with a, we, we have a, a consulting firm that we work with that's in the market research space. And when I brought in the first call I had with them, they said, look, here's, here's what it's going to be. They're all going to talk to you about DIY and nobody wants DIY. <laughs> so, and when I first started this, look, I, when, when I was running this originally for clients, I was the one getting the data. I was the one doing it. I didn't have a team behind me. I had an engineering team helping me build the platform on the NEC side. And he, NEC was just like, look, you worry about, about early adoption, customer acquisition, and understanding your marketplace and your product market fit. Just focus on that. Do this yourself. You can get people down the road. And they're like, and don't worry about it. You don't need to hire super talented, expensive people with 20 years experience. In fact, you don't want them because they're going to ask too many questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we get a lot of founders in that situation where they they pre-staff up their leadership and management team and all these experts. And I need people with Rolodexes and all these things. And man, if I hear one more person talk about, it, I pre-scaled my staff to prepare for all the sales that we were going to have. And I'm like, don't do that. No, it's, it's, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm in a fundraising round right now. And one of the things is, yeah. it's like, the, the big thing about us is they're like, well, you're not asking for enough money. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't need that. You know, like, why are you only trying to raise X when, when, you know, we'll cut you a check for $10 million. I was like, but I don't need that. Like, what am I going to do with that? Like, all I'm going to do is give you a majority of my company. It's, that's right. not what I'm into this for. I, you know, and they're like, well, how many, how many employees do you envision if you become a hundred million dollar company? I'm like 15. <laughs> I mean, we're cloud-based, so I don't need a lot of yeah. engineering. You know what I mean? Like we run on AWS. We're, we're cloud-based. We can integrate it into someone else. So it doesn't, to me, it's just being practical about it. Like, and I, right. a lot of startups that I've met, the biggest mistake that they make is they do a big, you know, angel and seed round or a series A round. And they're like, oh, I got to hire 50 people. Well, for what? Because I said I would spend this money. <laughs> I, to me, it's, it's what I'm always yeah. telling investors. It's like, well, do you want to return on your investment or do you want me to blow through your money? And then I'm spending all this money just to pay people, you know? So, so yeah, well, yeah, that's a whole other episode. So. <laughs> Before we run out of time, what's next? You know, you're, I mean, you haven't been at it very long. It sounds like things are going awesome. So, you know, what, what's, what's the David Wolf plan here? The David Wolf plan is A, to, to close a fundraising round and B, to really get market penetration. And I, I mean, frankly speaking, I'm really trying to pivot into, into healthcare and pharma and in those areas and get, you know, I just want to make places more efficiency. I want people to realize that this innovation exists and it's real to understand the differences between what they're doing and what they're not doing. And that, and just basically accept it, you know, don't, don't be afraid of change. Can't say it better myself. What's on, what's on your personal roadmap for the year? You said your goals. My personal roadmap is to get enough funding so I can get a new office space since I haven't been in one since 
late March, since I'm in New York City, so I can get out of my wife and daughter's hair and stop driving them crazy. And, and then also so we can move because my daughter's no longer a tiny child. She's going to be nine in a month and, and we need more space. Plus they want a dog. And I told them that they can't have a dog until we have an outdoor space. So I have to. See, this is, these are the real negotiations for anybody who's not familiar. It's the only negotiations I can't win. Yeah, right, right. You have many stakeholders and, and they can all say no. So. Yeah, I, I always like to say that, you know, I tell my daughter, this is a democracy, but my vote only counts half. <laughs> and your mom's counts for two, which means she. Always- right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think that's the best lesson. I, I can't I can't tell you uh, anything different. Listeners, we should just leave it, <laughs> leave it there. So. David, it's been fun. You know, thank, thanks for thanks for coming. If people want to get in touch with you and, and talk about the product or, or your business, you know, how do they do that? Um, our website is inguo.io. If you go to the blog page, we have a great demo. You can watch the whole platform be used and see what we do. There's no smoke and mirrors. It's from a conference where we actually demoed it. You can reach me at david.wolf at inguo.io. That's wolf with an E. That's kind of critical. People seem to forget. And you can reach me on LinkedIn and, you know, it's, I, I'm always more than welcome to talk with people. If you reach out to me on LinkedIn, please don't reach out to me about marketing. Please don't reach out to me about sales generation because you will go straight to the dustbin because I already have someone who does that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're all getting a little tired of those, right? Says the guy who probably does some of them, but I get, I get. 50 or 60 a day and it's yep. it's like and then i then the follow-up just kills me like i just want to push this up i don't know if you saw my last mail and it's just like do people understand if i don't answer that it's on linkedin you can see if someone looked at it or not so it's just like I looked at it yeah. i'm gonna need you to figure out the causation on that <laughs> well if i can get linkedin as a client if anyone on linkedin <laughs> right. so if linkedin is listening yeah that's the that's the goal let me help you right. <laughs> David, thanks for being here. It's been fun. Thank you, Ledge. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.